Are you ready to be comfortable with discomfort? Our guest was. Now, after nearly 25 years in the Guinness and beer space, he's making a name for himself in the spirit world. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Jason Kidd, founder of Outcast Brands, spent most of his career trotting around the globe working with beer. Now he's home in Ireland making Blood Monkey Gin and Two Shores Rum, both proof that in Jason's words, quote, interesting drinks are always on the margins of the category that we work in. Find out why his two liquids are not only breaking the mold, but Irish through and through. But before we begin, you can always watch Lush Life on YouTube where you'll find a video of this episode, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now, let's join Jason. So it's great to have you on the show today. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So... I always love to hear how people got where they did. So why don't we start at the beginning? Where did you grow up and how did you get into the drinks business? Yeah, I grew up in Kent in Southeast England. I lived most of my formative years there. I am one of three. So I have a brother and sister who are twins. They're in a completely different industry to myself. So one is a teacher and one is a nurse. So I'm not sure how I ended up in drinks, but after university, I applied for the European Orientation Program, which is run by Enterprise Ireland. And as part of that, I was very fortunate to get a role working for Diageo. It was then Guinness, Germany, based in Dusseldorf, and then moved to Frankfurt. So I cut my teeth in the industry working on Guinness and Kilkenny brands in Germany. And uh, were you a Guinness drinker then? Of course. And now that I live in (laughs) Ireland, it's pretty much the only thing I drink when I go out. Now, as well as Guinness, before that, did you drink beer at university or what kind of things were you drinking? Yeah, I think university is a great playground where you can pretty much try any drinks, any food. I finished university in the late 1990s and, you know, it was probably just at the advent of craft beer. It was the advent of new spirits, ready to drinks, you know, the likes of Wicked's and Bacardi Breezes. I usually steered away from those. I've, I've always been a passionate consumer of beer. That's led me to another venture that I have, which is we, we launched a craft beer brewery in London around eight or nine years ago on the Bermondsey Beer Mile. So I've always had an interest in that. And then I, I pivoted into spirits in the last few years. But I think my love of alcohol, or the industry at least, were definitely came from my first two roles. One was in Germany with Diageo, and the second one was in Heineken in Ireland. So two big traditional beer drinking countries, a lot of heritage, a lot of provenance stories to be told for within the beer category for both of those countries as well. And uh, yeah, while I now work in spirits, my kind of go-to drink at the end of a long week would always be a beer. Now back to Guinness in Germany. Was the German market big for Guinness? Yeah, it's actually one of the largest markets for Guinness, mainly due to the Irish pub infrastructure that Germany have. So when I worked there in the early 2000s, I think there was around six to 700 Irish pubs. You could go into pretty much any little town or village and there would always be an Irish Kneipe, which is German for Irish pub. 
And they would serve, you know, obviously Guinness, Kilkenny, Smithix, you know, there was Cashel Cider at the time as well. But yeah, it is it is still quite a large market for Irish expats. There's a huge amount of Irish and also English people that live in Germany. I think it's just down to the fact that there's a there's a similar culture between the two. And what did you learn in that first role that made you want to continue or or that you brought to your next role at Heineken? Sure. I, I found, first of all, that the industry is hugely collaborative versus, say, perhaps other more service-based industries that can be a little bit more competitive. I mean, obviously, there is healthy competition in the industry that we work in, uh, particularly when you get to the the very large players. But Diageo in Germany was a, still a relatively small player versus some of the larger local beer manufacturers and spirits manufacturers. So I, I, I think that's the one big thing that I've taken out of my career of nearly 25 years in the alcoholic drink space is that uh, it's very collaborative. There's a lot of written and unwritten partnerships that people forge with each other. It's a category that people like to talk about. It's a category that a lot of people engage in, be it on a monthly or a weekly basis. And everyone has an opinion on alcohol, what they like and what they don't like. You know, who's doing well, who's not doing particularly well, what drinks they're drinking and what they can make for friends at home, etc. So I think overall, I've just found it to be hugely collaborative. And some of the friendships that I built in my first weeks in Diageo, I met up with three or four of those people this past weekend, and it was our first reunion in around 20 years. So it's, it's nice to have that golden thread through our career. Yes, yes. No, I always say that. It's so funny because I hear you saying back to me what I usually say, which is there is competition, but there's always healthy competition. For sure. And I think that, you know, usually when you're drinking spirits, you're having a good time. So that, as a consumer, that lends itself to wanting to talk about it and, and, and that permeating through the whole business. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right, Susan. I mean, there are a number of people in the industry that say that we work in the entertainment industry. I, I, I personally wouldn't take it that far myself, but, you know, because obviously we need to ensure that people are hopefully enjoying our brands responsibly. But at the end of the of day, people tend to kick back with a long drink or a beer or a glass of wine and you're usually in a slightly more low tempo frame of mind so you know part of our job is to make sure that we're delivering on an occasion experience that people are expecting from the brands that they drink but also as well i'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later as well you know the categories that we're now working in gin and rum they're becoming ever more popular with consumers that are looking to explore beyond, you know, say the, the spirits of five or 10 years ago. If you look at how craft beer has exploded just in terms of the types of beers and types of ales and types of stouts, you can actually get under that umbrella of craft beer. And I think craft spirits is only just really beginning. I mean, we've obviously had the advent of, of large craft positioned or craft style brands that have come out of the larger players globally. But we look at Ireland, you know, 15 years ago, there's only 10 or 15 distilleries. There's now close to 50. So there are a lot of people entering this market. There are a lot of people bringing new thought into this market as well. And very lucky that I live in Ireland, which is famed for, you know, some really premium drinks, both spirits and beers. Absolutely. Now, what? so what led you from Heineken to where you are now was that the last place you worked before you decided to go on your own there, there was there was a stepping stone in between which was a three-year position with fosters in australia so that was a personal move that my wife and i chose to do 
And we happened to find ourselves in very similar roles that we were in in Ireland, down in down in Australia. Again, just being exposed to different markets, different consumer insights, different tastes, different occasions within you know Australasia was was super exciting. So it was after ten years of having worked for Diageo, Heineken, and Australia in three different markets in mainly marketing roles that I decided to then actually make a move into advertising. So I worked for a number of large advertising agencies and small advertising agencies in London. And it was at that point, I started to take some of the things that I'd learned from my days in those blue chip companies into the more entrepreneurial space. So as I mentioned, my first venture was into a craft beer brewery. So myself and a number of others from Foster's and a couple of uh, really interesting and intriguing young craft brewers at the time in London. We launched the Ansbach and Hobday Brewery, which is now, oh. it's on the Bermondsey Beer Mile, just down from the Shard in London. We also have a production and brewery facility down in Croydon, and we have a number of venues in London. We've hundreds of taps across the Southeast, which is fantastic. We're exporting and collaborating to a lot of other countries with some really exciting brewers. And that just gave me a real taste for wanting to do that kind of next step into having my own company but focus away from beer but but more into spirits yeah and fantastically your first venture was successful well it, we're, we're we're still going strong i think it's around seven or eight years now it's run by paul ansbach and jack hobday the brewery is obviously named after those two guys highly innovative don't take no for an answer really try and push the boundaries in terms of beer exploration and flavor and I think I've learned a lot from the process that those guys went through and kind of watched from the side in terms of, you know, what worked, what didn't work. But I think my key kind of takeout from my time there was you, from an entrepreneurial perspective, you have to be comfortable with discomfort, if that kind of makes sense. You, you know, if you're, if you're following a path that other of, others have forged for you, it might not be as exciting. It might not be as collaborative as where we feel that we have got to with our two new brands. But yeah, we, we try and make things a little bit more difficult for ourselves than we probably should do. But I always say that I find that the interesting parts or the interesting drinks are always on the margins of the category that we work in. So I think just the world of gin and the world of rum is only now just being properly explored. Now, when you left working with, well, I guess you're still working with the brewery, but when you set out to create <clears throat> Blood Monkey, did you know anything about gin? Were you a gin drinker? I, I knew a little bit about gin. I didn't know as much as I know now, but I think with gin and particularly rum, those were two categories that I hadn't been personally exposed to a huge amount. So there was a lot of research. There was a lot of market visits. There was a lot of consumer interrogation just to understand, you know, where the category in the world of gin had got itself to around three years ago. Craft gin has obviously been explosive just in terms of where the yeah. category has gone to i think there's well over 600 craft gin brands in the in the uk there's well over 100 within ireland i think a number of commentators on the industry unfairly say that distillers and founders go to gin first so that they can then stockpile and they can then pick up you know some 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 learnings as they move towards whiskey i think because we don't have our own distillery and because we are able to use our recipes and use our liquid development with a number of different distillers within Ireland. That gives us flexibility to really push the boundaries on what we're wanting to do. It also means that, you know, we're able to do it relatively 
quickly, nimbly with a little bit of agility because, you know, we, we don't have the huge overhead of a distillery. But uh, that said, no, I, I, I kind of went into the gin category with my eyes open, knowing that we had to bring something completely different from a liquid and from a brand positioning in order to even just be noticed, really. Did you have an idea of what that was before going into it or did you find it along the way? We launched around three years ago and we started working on Outcast Brands, which is the parent company, probably around four, four and a half years ago. So we knew that we wanted to move away from dry style gin. We knew that there was a world of gin beyond dry style, be it Geneva style, be it slow gin, be it old Tom. But also as well, we wanted to try and bring a new attitude to, to the gin category that in, in my mind, sometimes over obsesses over botanicals and, and process. Uh -huh. And I think at the end of the day, while the vast majority of consumers drink gin with tonic, because that's the behavior that's been ingrained into them by big brands over the years, there are multiple ways in which gin can be enjoyed, be it a Geneva style gin that you can drink neat, be it a slow gin that you can drink for a completely different occasion, be it an old Tom drink, which can change up cocktails in completely different ways. So while the vast majority of consumers drink dry style gins with tonic, I only see that as an entry or an access point to the wider category of gin that I think consumers are now starting to explore. So the guys at Master of Malt just literally a month or so ago came out with an article that consumers are now looking for more savory style gins. So this might be something that we can pick up on Blood Monkey because, you know, we, we market our our gin as a as a sipping gin that, that obviously goes well in tonic with tonics and and cocktails as well. But we have key savory botanicals such as Irish rosemary and Szechuan pepper that gives the liquid a much less floral or much less citrusy kind of taste that the vast majority of the category has gone after. Um, now, knowing in concept that you wanted to create something that was slightly different from a London Dry yeah. or Dry Gin, how long did it take you to develop the recipe that you were like, okay, all right, I think this is exactly what we want? Yeah, so so we co-developed our recipe with our distilling partner, West Cork Distillers, down in Skibbereen on, on the west coast of Ireland. It took us 14 rounds of prototyping to get to a liquid that we were we were both comfortable with. We got a couple of bottles of Genevieve. We got a couple of bottles of dry style gins that we liked. We tried, tried to understand just exactly what it was around those liquids that were different and what we what we really wanted to do. So Blood Monkey is a Geneva style gin that has been inspired by gins of, of yesteryear. So just a small history lesson that I picked up when it came to Genevieve is Genevieve is still drunk today and enjoyed today in Belgium, Holland, Northern France. It's usually drunk alongside other drinks, usually as a chaser to a beer or, you know, as an aperitif. But it is drunk in those countries as, you know, it it is a malted liquor base or a malted wine base rudimentary gin that has juniper and other botanicals placed into it. The history books will tell us that the recipe for Genevieve found its way across to the UK, found its way across to Ireland, where local distillers were looking to recreate that style of drink. It was somewhat unpalatable at the start, so they started to throw dry botanicals into the mix, you know, whatever they could essentially find at the local you know, market or at the local docks. And that is essentially where London dry still dry gin came from. The locals weren't able to pronounce Genevieve, so they called it Gen, and after Gen, it became gin. Right. So, but we, we're confident that we have developed a liquid that is inspired by the forefather of all gins, which is Genevieve. Now, when you were doing your research, was there one botanical or one 
flavor profile that you that was common in all of the ones that you liked and you decided to bring it to Blood Monkey? Yeah, there was one thing that we were really keen to do, which was to ensure that while we are an Irish craft gin, we wanted to, to remain relatively true to the original recipe of Genevieve. And as I mentioned, Genevieve has a malted grain base. So we use a malted Irish barley base as opposed to a neutral grain base. Um, we then infuse that with botanicals, either within the distillation or within through a vapor basket, particularly for our tropical storm and our spice storm variants. So what we have sought to do is be as true to the recipe as we can, because we can't call ourselves a Genevieve. We can say that we're inspired by, you know, the forefather of gin. So we use malted Irish barley. And then Genevieve in itself is, as I mentioned, it's savory. Yeah. It's not overly sweet. So we've tried to recreate that flavor profile through using you know obviously we have juniper we have orris root we have angelica we have citrus in there but they're kind of slightly played down versus the irish rosemary and the szechuan pepper that we place in there so that gives it that savory taste profile so you have the liquid you've got it after the 14th round now name and bottle you know it's different from any other yep. bottle that i've seen sure on is the back bar it is black did you already have the concept to have a black bottle and the name or yeah. did that come later so susan as you mentioned the bottle that you have there versus the vast majority of gins that are out there that come in clear green or blue glass we want to do something different this is an original corn wine or Geneva bottle and you'll see that it's a black stone style bottle it has white and gold writing on it so our bottle is a modern interpretation or pays oh. homage to these original bottles the name Blood Monkey is, is slightly left of center. So working with our packaging and design agency who came up with the name, Blood Monkey was actually the name that was given to a rogue on a, on a merchant ship. And that rogue or that rebellious spirit would essentially drill a hole into the grog barrel and take the liquid for him or herself. So that's why we have our drill bit icon on our um, on our bottle i love it and it's orange yeah or gold. gold or copper exactly as as you know old old screws or drill bits used to be in those days exactly so we're and again just from a commercial perspective you know sitting that on shelf on the back bar you know alongside clear or green glass bottles it's just an opportunity for the brand to get noticed and that's all we're trying to do really as we as we're in our third or fourth year of trading and when you you've told people that okay i have a new gin and it's called yeah. blood mucky what was the reaction have, you know did you have any funny I think, funny stories I think you, about you that? kind of get the rough with the smooth when you're trying to launch uh, a new gin uh, particularly in in well established markets Usually a retailer or bar or operator will often joke, you know, does the world need another gin? I think the fact that we're able to bring something new to a retailer's category or able to bring something exciting to a cocktail menu or to a back bar, it's, it's allowing us to get into venues and onto shelves where we probably wouldn't be able to were we to have a, a regular dry style gin. And how have people reacted to drinking it neat? And as I know, people are so used to drinking it with tonic that some people might be like, oh, no, no, there are other spirits that I like to drink neat, not gin. Yeah, so it's quite interesting. I think we grab attention through the name. We grab attention through the through the liquid descriptor. But it's not until you actually try it that you realize, OK, this is actually quite different. So there are a number of gins that you can absolutely drink neat. Those that go with tonic have a slightly similar production or distillation process. And so what we've sought to do is to... As I said, take inspiration from Genevieve, which is drunk neat, but then, you know, 
put certain botanicals into that mix that will give it a certain mouthfeel. So it is actually quite viscous when you actually drink it versus some other gins that can be just a little bit shallow, um, I think. So you do get a very rounded mouthfeel when you drink Blood Monkey. And particularly with the Szechuan pepper, which is the last botanical that you taste, you do have a lovely kind of warm tingle when you've actually swallowed it. Now, you said that, that you have the the original yep. and you have some other expressions. That's right. And I was wondering what wh how those came about. Yeah, so we essentially, again, did a little bit of research into just exactly what's going on within the market. And, you know, uh, it is very commonplace now for retailers or bar operators to have winter drinks menus or summer cocktail menus. So we thought, you know, while we can build on what we've made within Blood Monkey, we can have a seasonal winter gin and a seasonal summer gin. Our seasonal winter gin is called Spice Storm. Uh, it is quadruple distilled and finishing botanicals are charred Seville orange and cardamom pods. Mm -hmm. So it's a lovely warming yet also there is a good bit of citrus in that because of the charred Seville orange that we have within that. And then Tropical Storm is due to be launched in a few weeks time. Tropical Storm is a mango and lime leaf gin. So we are fairly confident that we're the only or first mango gin to come out of Ireland because Ireland's not famed for mangoes. But again, if you look at some of the trend reports around what tastes and what flavor cues are trending well globally with consumers, spice and mango are, are two of those. So we thought we would give both of those a go. Well, speaking of the tropics and tropical and mangoes, let's go on to your rum. Yeah, two shores. And two shores. So tell me, you know, you're doing gin. Rum is a whole different kettle of fish, as we say. Was it something that you always wanted to do as well? I think truthfully, no. But uh, when we looked at where the category was moving to and the increased interest in rum, it was a natural category to move into. Similar to gin, Ireland isn't famed for rum. There are only three or four rums from the island of Ireland and two from the Republic of Ireland where I'm speaking to you from today. But, you know, rum has been famed for being the next big thing for probably the last 10 or 15 years. It's since been leapfrogged by tequila and mezcal in the States. Definitely. But yes. we, similar to us wanting to bring something different to the gin market in Blood Monkey, we've sought to bring our Irish interpretation of a, a craft rum uh, within Two Shores. And what is that different thing that you wanted to bring? Sure. So, you left um, me hanging there. That's, oh, sorry about there. that. Um, so <laughs> the um, rum has always been, you know, a category that consumers and retailers have had interest in, but it's always been pretty much at, let's say, the mainstream, slightly cheaper end. So, you know, white rums. And again, similar to the research that we did on gin, the world of rum is enormous outside of the Caribbean, which a lot of people kind of is their go-to place when they think of, of rum. Rum is made pretty much across the globe, in and around the equator. So we essentially went out around a year and a half ago, and we reached out to between, I think it was 15 or 16 different distilleries and rum sources globally, everywhere for as far as Fiji, all the way to Hawaii. And we were sent samples that we could try. And we have landed on working with a independent Panamanian distillery um, for two reasons. One, they were able to source for us sustainably sourced sugarcane rum, which is important from an environmental perspective, but also as well from a taste profile perspective. It is not as sweet or as cloying as some sweeter rums can be. Similar to our approach in 
looking at Blood Monkey for the gin category, nearly the vast majority of rums that people are enjoying now are made from molasses, which is a byproduct of sugarcane production. So we've chosen to take that piece out of our production process. And, you know, we're using sustainably sourced sugarcane rum. It means that it has a sweet yet not overly sweet taste profile. The Irish angle that I mentioned was we bring in rum that is eight years old direct from the distillery in Panama. Every single drop of our Two Shores rum is eight years old. There are some differing rules around rum whereby you can put a certain amount of aged product in and then you can fill up the rest of the bottle with something else. So we're quite proud that we have a pure play eight-year-old. And then we then decant that rum that we get from the distillery in Panama into four different aged Irish whiskey barrels. So the one behind you, Susan, is aged in a 19-year-old single malt whiskey barrel. So again, if you look at where rum is moving to, if you look at where Irish whiskey is moving to as well, Irish whiskey has got a fantastic name for itself. It is doing incredibly well within the wider whiskey category. So we are then finishing that rum in Ireland for up to another 12 months. So what you get is an Irish whiskey aged rum. I guess when you look at the category a bit, a, a bit further back, there are three kind of three pillars or, or the three kind of countries of origin or styles within the rum category. The history that always happened in and around the Caribbean, that there would have been French vessels there, there would have been Spanish vessels there, and there would have been British vessels there because each of those countries had really strong and powerful navies around three or 400 years ago. So the Spanish brought their own style of rum over, the French brought their own style of rum over, as did, as did the British. So British rum tends to come from what were typically or potentially still are historically linked with the United Kingdom. Ours is a Spanish style rum. So our rum is fairly robust. It's of a pretty high ABV. What we really liked about it was the fact that, A, it was sustainably sourced, but also as well, we found that Spanish style rums were able to, let's say, they were able to age better within the barrels that we've chosen. The wider category is showing that people are coming into the category at golden or spiced rum level. So we wanted to make sure that we had a premium golden rum as we go out, but... We're still learning about, you know, the, the whole category of rum and, and how it's made and the processes that the distillers go through. But one of the lovely things about Two Shores is that, you know, it's from the shores of Panama to the shores of Ireland. You could see in the future that this might just simply be our first series of rum. So we can source rum from anywhere as long as it is aged in Ireland in aged Irish whiskey barrels. And how long do you keep it in the barrel? Because um, Ireland is a uh, can be a cold place as opposed to uh, Panama. It sure can be a, a fairly chilly place. Yeah. So we age it for a for for up to a further twelve months. So I was just down at our distilling partner in East Galway last week. Five of our six rums are now finished, so they're starting to be bottled. Our second batch, but there's one that's going to be finished in a vintage port barrel that's just not right yet. So we're going to give it a couple more months. But that in total will have been in, in the second barrel for I think it will have been 10 or 11 months at that stage. But we test our liquids every six weeks to two months. There's an amazing distilling and production team down there. And I think just as we're building out the brand, we're building out the different styles. It's one of those ones where you can put it into a barrel and you might need three months, you might put it into a barrel and you might need another 12 months. But and again, as you mentioned, it's all down to whereabouts in the world. You're, you're actually a distilling. So Panama is a, is a very humid place. It's got year-round 
fairly high temperatures, and that obviously has a huge effect on that initial aging in ex-bourbon barrels in Panama. But we were very keen to make sure that we had an Irish, a, a genuine Irish angle on our rum. So uh, we will always age two shores in Ireland in, in aged Irish whiskey barrels. Fantastic. I also saw that you have an Amarone cask style. That's right. This is a uh, Amarone wine cask, which comes from a vineyard in Italy, which again, when the barrel comes in, we place Irish whiskey into it. We take the Irish whiskey out and then we then place our rum into it. Oh, so it does have So that. it always has. Yeah, um, it will always every... have an Irish whiskey finish to it. Yeah, but, I love it. So it'll have a triple barreled kind of finish to it. Uh, we have the Oloroso Sherry, which is aged in a Oloroso Sherry butt uh, from Jerez in Spain. That's bottled at 45% ABV. And then we have a cask strength which we age in a peated cask so it is a lightly ah. smoked rum and then you said that you have one you have a, a a port that's coming that's right we have two limited editions coming so they'll be launched in the summer of 2023 they will be relatively low batch so we're, we're trying to again drive intrigue and drive newsworthiness for the brand but also as well there are a number of high-end drinkers that are now you know looking to explore within run the same way that they would within scotch or bourbon or irish whiskey so we'll have an Irish Imperial Porter finish, so an Irish Black Beer Stout finish. Right. And we will also have a vintage Tawny Port finish as well. I feel like you've just gone full circle now because <laughs> yeah. you're back to beer. Well, that's true. That's Stout. true. I hadn't thought Stout. about it that way. I hadn't thought about it that way. But, but again, you know, uh, there's nothing more Irish within the alcoholic drink space than, you know, Irish Stout Beer and Irish Whiskey finish. So, you may uh, have a Guinness finish after the after all. You never know. Yeah, I'm not at liberty to say where we got those barrels <laughs> from. No, no, we won't. We won't hold you to anything. Don't worry. Now, so so that's what's happening. That's what's new. Now, are these the two shores? Did you imagine them as also sipping as well as? Yeah. Gin? So um, the same way that connoisseurs of whiskey would drink higher end whiskeys, they're not going to put mixers into them, or they're not going to put them into cocktails. So we, we pride ourselves in that all of our liquids, be it gin or the rum or any future liquids that we make, will always be of a high enough quality and of a high enough smoothness that they can be drunk neat. So we are going for that occasion whereby you can enjoy a drink without it being diluted down with a mixer or changed up into something else with a cocktail. That said, the cocktail scene has exploded globally, probably 15 10 years ago, the only place you could get a cocktail would usually be in a high-end hotel or maybe in a restaurant. There are now specialist rum bars, specialist gin bars, specialist bourbon bars, and specialist cocktail bars. So we export Blood Monkey to New York, where we're in a, a number of high-end cocktail bars and more menus there as well. And the likelihood is, is that Two Shores will find its way into higher-end cocktails too. But we as I said, we pride ourselves on the fact that our liquids can be drunk neat or in long drinks or in cocktails. Well, I can't wait to open this bottle and have a sip myself Great. this evening. Enjoy. Uh, thank you. Now, I think we discussed everything new that's happening, but is there anything else on the horizon for you? Um, there is something else on the horizon. It's no secret that Ireland is famed for whiskey. So I guess really through the gin and through the rum, we are growing ourselves into the market that we're operating in. We will be launching a whiskey in 2024, but it's still very much in early stages in terms of brand name, look and feel and liquid. So we're only just starting that journey now. So if I had something to share with you, I would, but it's still very much, still very much in development at the moment.
Well, I can't wait to hear what's going to happen and, and try that as well. Thank you. Now, I always end with some top tips for the home bartender. And I was wondering if, you know, anyone who either had Blood Monkey or yeah. Two Shores or anything, what would you suggest for them? Um, I'd suggest first and foremost, if you are a home mixologist, like I think most people tried to become over lockdown, is make sure that you have just even some of the kind of starting equipment. You know, get yourself a half decent cocktail shaker, get yourself a stirrer, get yourself a, a nice mixing glass, get yourself a strainer, because then at least it'll give you the confidence to be able to make some of the slightly more adventurous cocktails that are there. I would also say as well, don't underplay what difference garnishes are able to to make to a cocktail. So it's, it's, it's amazing how something as simple as a whiskey sour can be different depending on how you make that and, and what garnishes you put with it. And another one would be within those garnishes as well is, you know, making yourself really simple syrups at home, 50% sugar, 50% water. And then, you know, you can pretty much add whatever you want into that and just steep it in there and leave it in the fridge or on the side for a couple of weeks. And that those flavors will develop. So one cocktail that was developed by a bartender in New York that's on a number of menus there is very, very simple. It's 50%, well, it's 50 CLs of Blood Monkey. 50 cl's of lemon juice it's simple syrup and then a freshly crack of black pepper it's got a lovely fresh yet citrus yet savory taste to it and you just need to serve that over ice so within cocktails i don't think you need to overcomplicate things you can make some really interesting drinks with just three or four ingredients so i'd say you know give yourself a head start by getting you know just some of that equipment you don't have to you don't have to get the best that's out there. You just need some of the simple things to have in and around the kitchen. And if you're lucky enough to have a home bar, a bar, and then just make drinks that you're comfortable making. You know, you don't need to be putting them under smoke gongs or anything like that. So we can we, we can easily make very simple cocktails at home with a small number of ingredients. Those are super. Thank you so much. And last but not least, if you could be drinking anything anywhere right now, where would that be and what would you be drinking? Yeah, I've been asked this question once before and my answer will remain the same, which is it would be a pint of Harvey's Best in Kent, uh, which is where I grew up. It was a beer that my dad used to drink. He's unfortunately no longer with us, but it's a fairly basic country ale. But uh, as soon as I drink it, I'm, I'm transported back to, let's say, where, where, I, where I spent most of my time growing up. So it would have to be that. Well, it sounds good to me. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank Jason for being on the program and for sponsoring the transcription. Since summer is coming, we decided to make a fan favorite for our cocktail of the week. Our cocktail of the week is the Two Shores Golden Mojito. So easy. In minutes, you will have the perfect beach cocktail, even if you're freezing down below in the Southern Hemisphere. Take a highball glass and muddle two cut-up limes and about six leaves of mint. Add one teaspoon of golden demerara sugar or light brown sugar and crush it with your muddler. Then 60 mils of Two Shores Single Malt Finished Rum. Stir to mix everything, and then add crushed ice and a splash of soda water. Then add more crushed ice if you need to. You'll find this recipe, more rum cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find some of the ingredients in our shop.
off to the Oslo Prosecco Festival. That's Oslo, not Oslo. It's in Italy, right outside of Venice. If you live for lush life, then make sure you head out to the bars you love and order a drink. The music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission, and is also a finalist for the Sonic Bloom Awards given by She Podcasts. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. On the next episode, we'll be chatting with someone who had to make his own gin. He just had to. And that was over 20 years ago. Until that time, bottoms up.